0: What's good, First Church? It is great to be here with you. Welcome, Hebron Online, Jasper County Jail, DeMont, Wheatfield. It is a good day. You know, I've been praying for some rain. I know some of you guys have some graduation open houses today. Don't matter. I'm still praying for rain. We need some rain. It surrounds us by like 270 degrees, but God, bring it here, please. I hope you guys are really enjoying this series. I have very much enjoyed A Faith That Lasts. This is the last weekend that we have talking about this. And we've all seen people who have loved God so much, but over the course of time, their faith just fades. And I think that's kind of a big theme for the 2020s is a fading faith. And I think all of us have experienced it, at least on a certain level. Our faith is fading in authorities. Our faith is fading in our culture, country, or society. Our faith is fading, perhaps, in our safety. For some of us, our faith is fading in our religion. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 1, says this, Now our faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. What this is telling us is the seed of faith is what? It's hope. It's hope. I think for a lot of us, our hope is dying. Our hope is dying. We're surrounded by bad news. We just don't trust things anymore. I mean, so many of us, it's like, oh, can you believe what's happening? I mean, look at this. And you read this, it's like, oh, golly, so many different things. What are we going to do? Lord, help us. Lord, come soon. One of the big places I have seen faith dying is organized religion. And I see a lot of people just kind of say things like, you know, I don't need to go to a church to believe in God. And that is technically true on a basic level, but overwhelmingly the data would tell us that not being engaged with the church will cause your faith to die. That is the truth. Now, for definitions at the beginning of this talk, church in the Bible is not a building, believe it or not. Church in the Bible is the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering. And I think the definition is Christians or people, it should say, and or people, gathering together to learn, worship, and serve God more effectively. It's people coming together. That's church. That's what it is. And even if you're not a Christian, you're gathering with us today, and I think you're going to find this talk very useful, because I want to use it to address some of the core problems we're seeing in society. And if you look at our society today and say, what is happening? What are we going to do as a country? And you look at the direction of our country, nobody looks at the direction of our country right now as like, you know what? Things are great, working great, like really love it. No, no, we don't. So today, what I want to do to address that, to talk about that, is to look at some Bible and make some solution-based points. And I hope you'll leave today with a greater faith, a greater faith, greater hope. The other day, I was driving up through Chicago, and there was a traffic jam, and Google Maps rerouted me. Ever have that happen where Google Maps says, a faster route is available? Would you like to take it? I said, absolutely. It said I'd save like 15 minutes. I say, let's take that route. So it rerouted me through a town up north called Gary on a street called Broadway, and I was riding in my Buick Saber with my, you know, all six of us, all my kids crammed in there, missing a few hubcaps, and it was perfect, okay? We drive through the city, and my kids start asking questions, really good questions. I didn't prompt them, we're just driving through um, the city of Gary on Broadway, and my kids go, Daddy, 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 why are all those people just standing around, not doing anything? What are they doing? It was a good question. You know, and these are their unprompted questions, they'd never seen it before. Why do all those homes and buildings have boards on their windows, or no glass? What happened to the ruse, Daddy? Daddy? Why don't those people standing around pick up some of the trash in their neighborhood? They're not doing anything. Good question. Daddy, this was one that really got me. This was surprised and actually made me think. But Daddy, when we crossed that street, we were crossing into Whiting, Daddy, why did, why did all of the bad homes go away? And I was like, that is a good question. I don't actually have the answer to that. But as we drove through Gary, it was at least parts of it that we were driving through. It felt kind of like a hellscape. And it was one of those areas where I just wondered, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? Have you ever had a situation in your life, in our nation's life, where you look at society, you look at your family, you look at a community, you just think, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? Like, you start to lose hope. You start to lose faith that something can be done. You look around, and you just think, man, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. This is just messed up. It's not just Gary. I think there's a lot of America that's becoming this way. You know, my hometown that I came from in Minnesota, the Twin Cities, especially Minneapolis, are worse than Gary with crime. I mean, it's lawless. It's not safe. Straight up not safe to go to parts of it. And I think a lot of us wonder, God, what are, what are you going to do? You know, my experience with my kids was actually super similar to an experience that Jesus gave his disciples. Only in the Bible, this is a trigger warning, it's a little bit more extreme than Gary there's a lot going on. Jesus was traveling with his disciples like I was with my family and they take a detour like we did. Uh, and Matthew, who is the author of the book of Matthew, is also one of Jesus' 12 disciples and he wrote a book specifically to Jews that was a biography of Jesus' life. And in that book, he says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Philippi. Now, when you're reading your Bible, a lot of times you see a word like this and you're like, boring, just skip over it, right? I don't want to take the time to to sound it out. I don't like phonics anymore. I'm too old for that. Don't recognize that. Let's just, whatever, doesn't matter. But this is the key to the whole passage. And we're going to be exposing it verse by verse. You can turn to Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13 if you'd like. But they get to this region. And to the Jews, this is a big deal. It's a big statement. It's on the north end of the nation of Israel. And these boys had been raised in a Jewish society that worshipped the God of the Bible. You might not know this, but Jewish society was kind of a trailblazer in the world of antiquity. They were working hard to eliminate sex slavery as a society, really the first to do that. They were working to elevate women and children to the level of humanity, which is kind of a big deal. They worked to end human sacrifice. The God of the Bible was really the first to do that. And the God of the Bible was the first to put a stop to the sexualization of children. In the Greco-Roman world of antiquity, there was this thing called pederasty, which was essentially the endorsed, sanctioned sexual abuse of children. And that's where we get the word pedophilia. And Jesus put an end to that. It's pretty remarkable. Jesus is traveling with these 12 sheltered apostles who were mostly all teenagers. They would be the equivalent of homeschoolers today from good families, great kids. Just hadn't seen a lot. And they go to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And uh, it's a city of strategic importance. It's also a very cosmopolitan, secular Roman city. It would be like going to L.A., Chicago, D.C., Portland, Minneapolis. Very non-Christian, non-Jew city. And these boys had never seen this. Now, the city had this god, a couple of pagan temples at it. Uh, One was to the god of Pan, the god of the wild. And then it had a large temple to the Canaanite god of Baal in that city as well. And like most secular gods... uh, The worship of pagan gods involved a lot of unspeakable acts. I'll just lightly describe, you know, thousands of sex slaves, usually captured women and children, and the god Pan involved an ancient version of furries, which is interesting. Um, If you are a furry or you know someone who is, I'm glad you're here today, and it's interesting to talk about the origin of that in antiquity. Um, Worshiping the god Baal involved human sacrifice. In all cases, it involved devaluing humans to the level of animals. Very consistent. And it involved unspeakable acts of violence and sexual violence. It's amazing to see a lot of these things come back as the teachings of Jesus recede from various cities. We see a society that has begun sexualizing children again in a number of different ways. Uh, We see atheistic China or the former Soviet Union and North Korea where humans are treated like animals and killed and slaughtered like them too. We see a society that doesn't see the difference between human life and animal life. And that's what's taught in our schools today. You're an animal. But for Jesus' squad, this was the first they'd ever seen of humans being devalued like this. And the text doesn't tell us specifically, but I think it's a safe assumption that they walk through the city and they see this destruction and they're just sort of shell-shocked and melancholy. These boys having never seen anything like this. And they ask, why? God, like, what are you going to do about this? Like my kids driving through Gary, it's, why would this happen? You know, what are people going to do? People just standing around watching this happen. And the question, the question that forms in their mind's eye is, God, what are you going to do about this? And I think this is exactly what Jesus wanted them to ask. He's a great teacher. He uses a method of teaching called the Socratic method, Socrates method, which is where you ask questions. And so Jesus asked them a question in return. He asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's his nickname for himself. Who do people say that I am? And their answer in context would be a great cultural hero. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln says, well, they replied, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, key phrase here is some say. They're saying other people say that this is what you are. And the reason, the reason is um, Jewish literature, the Jewish Bible uh, predicted the coming of this great prophet called the Messiah who would redeem the world of its sins. And the disciples are hoping that Jesus is the Messiah, but nobody wants to come out and say that yet. Because, you know, it's a big statement. Jesus recognizes that the disciples are skirting the question. So he corners them with this next statement. I like this right here. He says, but who do you say that I am? Don't tell me what some say. I want you to tell me what you say. I want you to go on record. You ever have that where your mom or dad corner you and you're like, you're kind of giving a little bit of evasive answers, you know, to avoid talking about a specific thing. And Jesus corners them. And they're like, uh, you know, silent for a moment. They've seen Jesus do some pretty great miracles. I mean, he fed 5,000 with just a little bit of food, kids lunchable. And then he's raised two people from the dead at this point. So finally, Peter comes out and he says, you know what? I'll say it. You're the Messiah the Son of the living God. And the hair stands up on everybody's neck because finally Peter said out loud what everybody thought. It was a big moment where it's finally acknowledged what they've been hoping for. Because the Messiah was the one who was going to fix all the world's problems. What Peter was saying is, I believe that you're going to fix Caesarea Philippi. It's a big deal. I want you to imagine this with me one more time knowing the context. The disciples are walking around the region of Caesarea Philippi and they're like, man, did you see that city? Did you see the kids and the women and the slaves there? Did you see them sacrificing that woman to the god Baal? They were just murdering her. They'd never seen anyone die before, be murdered. Did you see how messed up that city was? And the people didn't even care. In fact, they took pride in what they were doing. They took pride in their evil. What are we gonna do? How could God fix this? And what were they doing? They were losing hope, so they were losing faith, all the disciples. God says, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, that's right. That's right I am. He says, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. You learned this from God. I am the Messiah. You look at this broken city and you're losing hope, therefore you're losing faith. But I am the Messiah, so it's going to be okay. I think it's pretty cool, though, because the disciples are starting to lose faith. And Jesus, at this point, like another way to put it would be like this. He looks at them, he's like, did you wake me up? Did you rub my lamp? And now you're walking out of me. I'm going to redeem Caesarea Philippi, so you sit down, right? I like that. That's what I imagine him doing. And then in Matthew 16, verse 18, he gives them this amazing speech, right? Next verse, he goes through this. He says, I am the son of God, right? I am gonna fix it. And then he looks at them and this is such a powerful speech. Imagine, you know, the orchestra starts playing, you know, William Wallace on his charger. Freedom, here comes. Verse 18, he says, Now I say to you that you are Peter which means rock. And he's not just talking to Peter. The implication is he's talking to everybody, everybody, us too. You're Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. I'm gonna fix this city. I'm gonna fix this world. And you look at the evil, you know, the world devouring their children, parents sexualizing their kids to win social favor and more clout, human sacrifice, all of it. I'm gonna crush it. I'm gonna defeat it. I'm gonna do it so hard, the powers of hell won't be able to touch it. And Peter... I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to do it through you and through the church. And this is my one big point today. And this is kind of interesting. This is what, this is, this is what I want you to get. Now I have four sub points, but I have one big point. This is the big point I want to make today. Jesus says to Peter and to all of us, I will fix the broken world through your involvement at church. And when you sit here all concerned and you look at all these issues, Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, it is scary. You know, a lot of crazy stuff. Caesarea Philippi, you know, it looks scary. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to do it through you and I'm going to do it through the local church. And here's what's amazing. A few years later, Peter would start a church in Caesarea Philippi, according to theologians. That's what they think. 400 years later, Caesarea Philippi would be predominantly Christian. Uh, Human sacrifice would have ended. The pagan temples where thousands had been enslaved and thousands more had been murdered, those horrible places were destroyed. They were rubble, and on their former places uh, would be churches. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's pretty remarkable to think about that. And Jesus did it through Peter in the church. Jesus, through the church, as a matter of historical fact, elevated women to a position of dignity. Jesus, through the church, stopped child sex abuse is an acceptable practice. Jesus did that. You have him to thank for that. Jesus, through the church, ended sex slavery in general is an okay thing. That's all part of the legacy of the church as a matter of historical fact. And whether you be an atheist, a Muslim, or a Mormon, you have Jesus Christ of Nazareth to thank for that. Today, people have a fading faith. And they wonder, well, what can we do about this crazy world? I mean, have you turned on the news? Have you seen all this stuff? And the historical simple fact is this the church of Jesus has been the greatest force for good in human history. This is a non-debatable, measurable matter of historical fact if reducing human suffering is what you want to look at. Non-Christian movements, measurably, especially atheistic ones and pagan ones, they all tend toward the same things. Treating humans on the same level of animals. The sexualization of women and children and the embracing of unbridled greed and self-promotion where nothing is ever enough. And that's not just a description of secular America, that's a description of Caesarea Philippi and societies that are secular throughout human history. The only consistently successful antidote at stopping this that's worked throughout history is the church of Jesus. And I see lots of people say things like, well, I don't care much for the church, I just, I believe in God and that's enough for me. But if you love God and you love people, and you love statistics and you love data and you want to protect children and elevate women, and the only way that has truly been historically successful on a large scale, then you're gonna love the church and you're gonna to go to church because it is the movement that God has chosen to heal the world with. And we are the rock upon which it is built. It's kinda of cool. Even if you don't believe in God, the historical record indisputably says that the Church of Jesus of Nazareth in aggregate is the best way that we can uh, u- or use our lives to build, to make a flourishing society. And you don't have to take my word for it. On the most rudimentary level, just visualize a world map in your mind. Every nation that has been a Christian nation for two centuries or more values women and children, while traditionally atheists and non-Christian and Muslim nations don't value human life, mistreat women and children, or have concentration camps like China, and commit unspeakable atrocities as they de-platform, cancel, and destroy Anyone they disagree with, dehumanize people they disagree with. The church matters. It is the beacon of light and hope throughout human history. There's so many reasons why I love the church, and I wanted to, because I promised in this series, that we would talk about data. And I wanted to do that. Some of you guys love data that's very moving for you. But I also want to talk practically about why I really love the church and why I think it matters for all of humanity. So I want to, for the rest of the message, give four subpoints on why I think church really matters. And the first one, pretty simple. I think the church really matters because it makes us better. I ran track and field, and I was actually the fastest two-miler on my team, which really isn't saying much because I was also the only one who willingly ran the two-mile on our team because I was into hurting myself, I guess. But for all four years of high school, there was a kid from Fridley High School. He was my age. I, was, I went to Matamita High School. He was from Fridley, and he would always beat me by a few paces. I'd finish every race, and literally like that far in front of me, like going as fast as I can, you know, slobber on my face, feeling like I'm dying, not seeing color anymore, trying to beat this guy, and he would beat me by that much every time I lost to him, and it was kind of frustrating to always get beat by that much. My senior year, I met up with him one last time. Before the race, my coach told me, said, Johnny, Johnny, come here, okay, that's what he called me back then. Johnny, all your races, all your best times, I pulled the numbers, have been against that kid. Did you know that? I said, no, coach, I didn't know that. He goes, all of your races, you were 15 to 20 seconds faster than you would be the rest of the year, all because of that kid. It's not that he beats you by that much, it's that he made you better than you've ever been. And I thought that was really interesting. And he said, I want you to go out there and, and beat him. And then he punched me in the chest, which coaches can't do now, but he did back then. Very motivating speech, okay? And I beat him. I beat him that last race, praise God. You know, we were on the ground rolling around just absolutely dead, you know, sitting there. They they tell you got to stay standing, put your hands above your head, but I didn't do that. I just would fall on the ground like dying, trying to, you know, hyperventilate. I don't know. Anyway, after we got up, he gave me a hug and he said, John, I want you to know that all of my best races were against you. And I just laughed. I was like, me too. We made each other better. That's so cool. Listen, church is the same way. I would not be near as far as I am in life were it not for guys like Rich Heemstra making me a better father and husband. Or Paul Yankee pushing me to leave my old life of sin behind me or Bob Bauer calling me to be a better pastor. All of these friends are from church. No other organization that I know of calls you to push harder and be better in so many arenas of life. Proverbs says it this way, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. I look at society today and I see an incredible lack of sharpening. That's a big problem we see. We live in friend groups or in algorithms or in echo chambers where we only hear what we want to hear. And I think... What happens is, I don't see people getting sharpened like they once were, getting corrected. And the results are a lot of dull people who are chronically online. Look at previous generations, you know, pushing back the Great Depression, defeating the great evil Axis powers in World War II, building the great society that we lived in. And today, we've got a bunch of people, chronically online, that's it. We're dull, we're dull. And what are we doing? We're missing out on our potential. We're missing out on our potential. There are no places where people are lovingly critiqued. There are people hatefully canceled, but there are no places where people are lovingly critiqued and corrected by trusting, wise friends. And you know what it shows? I'm so thankful for the people of God's church that have pushed me to run the race of life harder. I think I'm twice as far as where I would have been without them. And I just want you to imagine your families. Imagine where your life would have been or could be if you are engaged with a group of loving people who push you harder and farther. Imagine the gift that you're giving to your kids by raising them up in a community that loves them enough to push them. the second reason that I love church is because of the family legacy it creates. A few weekends ago, my brother and his kids and my parents and my family were all at the lake together. And as a big introvert, I was a little skeptical about 13 people crammed on a deck for 12 hours. I was like, this is going to be a complete atrocity for my life. So I came fully prepared with my noise-canceling ear pods and a bunch of books pre-downloaded on my phone to listen to. And I was like, I'm just going to zone out and find everything else to do to not be here. That's typically my plan for big gatherings like that. But instead, I kept getting emotional. I mean, I just had so much fun that day watching my kids. That's what introverts do. We watch other people. But I watched my kids and their cousins play together, laughing and screaming on a floating pad for the better part of three hours. And I just thought, this is so amazing to see three generations playing together. And then I watched my oldest daughter lead a discussion amongst all of her cousins and her aunts and uncles and grandparents about how they've seen God working in their lives over the last year. And I heard my family describe God's goodness in various different earnest and sweet ways. And then I heard my family pray the most beautiful and heart-filling prayers. And I got a lump in my throat. You see, here's the truth. My parents have an international marriage that no doubt would be difficult for anyone. And I know that without Jesus, their marriage would not have lasted. But because of Jesus' example in their life, showing them how to forgive they learned how to forgive and have grace for one another god saved their marriage my brother and i have completely different and incompatible personalities i mean our personalities are so radically different we're into so completely different things we argue differently we we view the world differently and yet we love one another deeply and have a deeply connected relationship that is functional because of jesus and I saw our kids three generations later playing together in a truly loving family full of joy and grace and to God be the glory. It's only because of his hand in our life. And I know for sure it happened through God's church. That legacy was a direct result of my parents' decision to be faithful to the ecclesia, to the gathering. The people of God's church Several on several occasions helped keep our family together at critical junctures, helped facilitate healing between my mom and dad, helped facilitate healing between my brother and myself. They walked by our side in critical moments, and that's what church does. There is a reason why Christians who are engaged with church weekly and who attend a life group regularly are over 90% less likely to get divorced. That's crazy. The old data said Christians, without actually asking what that meant to people, have the same divorce rate as secular society, but for a while that was because Christianity was ubiquitous within society. But for people who are actually engaged with God, 90% less, that's crazy. And I look at my parents' 43 year marriage and the beautiful legacy it created and it's only because of Jesus and his church. And I'm so thankful for that. Imagine the legacy you can give your children and their children by saying, hey, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is what we make a priority. You are creating a legacy. legacy. And church isn't for convenience. It is to create a legacy of eternity and faithfulness in your life. Third reason I love church is um, because of the fact that it's the most meaningful part of our lives. I remember as a kid watching this lady named gina come to her church and this is i was in my phase where i was like i don't think christianity is what i want to believe right my dad's family was atheist my mom's family was buddhist and i just wasn't sure where i was at but i watched this lady come into our church and she had three kids she was on the brink of homelessness she was a single mom with no job skills and few life skills and a broken down car and a lot of problems and I thought, there's just, there's just no hope. This is just, we're hoes, There's no way. And I watched the church come around this woman. She received coaching. She received a little help and some connections. And she chose to follow Jesus. Not that much effort went into it, though. And I remember a year later watching her get baptized on the shores of the St. Croix River. She'd gotten a job at a bank through the connections of a church member. She was doing great. And she had a new confidence in life. She was confident. She was dressed better. She talked better. She had a new purpose and hope and faith in Jesus. And as she got baptized, she tearfully extolled the goodness and faithfulness of God. And I wasn't even a Christian yet, but I was so amazed by this. I just thought, wow, like that was, that was special. And I just couldn't believe how this woman could be so transformed by God in her life. You know, I remembered all the things I was part of. I went to a very secular public school that I would say discriminated against Christians even in that day pretty hard. All the things I'd heard about in life You know, at school, it was Make-A-Wish Foundation, you know, Boys and Girls Club, you know, you got to do this. It was, you know, buy an acre of rainforest with your pennies and all the good things we were supposed to do and they're supposed to, you know, be good in life. None were like that. I mean, they paled in comparison. They were nothing. I thought about all the fun trips I'd went on with my parents. Sorry, Mom and Dad, you know, water skiing, cliff jumping, downhill skiing, exotic vacations. They were great, but they were nothing compared to watching God work in this woman's life. I was so amazed. I mean, I thought, "Here, here we're fixing a broken world. And I thought about how her kids would have been in foster care and how she would have been on welfare, but the church broke the cycle and the family was thriving. You see, the church is what heals the world. It is the most meaningful part of life. You know, to this day, in 19 years of professional ministry, I've gotten to see people hand bullets to us that they were going to kill themselves with, but they found Jesus before they pulled the trigger. We've had people... Dump drug paraphernalia in our dumpsters saying, I'm done with that because of Jesus. We've had marriages healed that were on the brink of ending and they were one Sunday away and they came to church and God got a hold of them. We've seen families restored. We've seen people forgiving unspeakable things. We've seen reconciliation amongst extended family. And most importantly, we have seen eternities change because of the grace of Jesus in people's life to God be the glory. The best parts of my life. The best parts of my life, the best things I've ever gotten to be a part of are because of God's church. He builds it through us and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Those are the words of Jesus. The church is practical and great because it's made my life better. It's made your life better. It's made me a better man, father, husband. It's single-handedly saved my family and created a legacy that I'm proud of. It's been the most meaningful part of my life. The fourth reason I love the church And I think you might too is, um, and these first three I think could really bless a non-Christian. I mean, you see it, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. This fourth one is specifically for Christians, but it says this, it says, God commands us to do it. I don't know if you realize that, but I believe that as Christians, doing church at home, alone, online, long-term, or even just in your own studies, is breaking God's commands. And if you're exploring online, I want you to know I'm really glad that you are. But I want to encourage you to make a plan to come to church in person. This is part of God's command to us. And here's why. Here's why. I uh, read that passage at the start from Hebrews chapter 11. It says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. And I talked about how, you know, what, what happens right after that is, is the author talks about what's called the hall of faith. By faith, all these great people did these great things. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, they, they, they had this amazing faith that lasted. Right? And it's like, you need to have a faith that lasts. But what I'm about to read to you is the foundation of that whole passage. It tells us how to have a faith that lasts. Hebrews 10, 23 puts it this way right before it gets into the, you know, this, you should have a faith that lasts. This is how you do it. It says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. Okay? And that part's like an unfunded mandate. It's like, oh, great, God. I'll just, I'll hold tightly to the faith we affirm, but the hope we affirm, it's great. I'll just hold on tight. You know, it's like your counselor saying, oh, you're depressed? Just get over it. It's like, okay, thanks, God. How do we actually do that? But I love that he actually tells us this is how to do it, okay? You ready? He's gonna tell us this is how, this is how you hold tightly. He says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. How do you motivate one another? You have to gather with other people in a way that's motivating. You gotta gather together. You gotta ecclesia together. You gotta church together. And let us not neglect our meeting together. What a church, it's a gathering, it's an ecclesia. Let us not neglect our meeting together, our churching, as some people do, but let us encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. God says, do you want a faith that lasts? Do you want a faith that spans the generations? You have to church. You have to gather together. And look, 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 look even if I didn't follow Jesus, which I do, I would still go to church. I mean, the data is overwhelming. It it increases average life expectancy by seven to nine years. You don't have enough time not to go to church. It increases mental health immensely. It reduces the effects of Alzheimer's dramatically. You should read the studies done on Catholic nuns and the effects of Alzheimer's in their life. Church dramatically slows the effects of dementia and Alzheimer's, that's really cool. It increases the probability of your kids succeeding. And I think most significantly, as we talked about earlier today, it heals the world historically. I mean, if you look at a broken world and you're like, man, it's just so messed up, and what are you going to do? Jesus gives us the answer you're going to church. That's what you're going to do. Because I love Jesus. Those are the non Christian reasons to love church. But because I love Jesus, I'm here every Sunday because God calls us to. He's my leader and forgiver. You know, I think all of his law makes sense. But if he told me to stand on my head, I would. And he says, go to church. And you know what? He's not just my forgiver. He's my Lord, Savior, Redeemer, Master. And for our family, as for me and my house, we gather together. We ecclesia, And this is our commitment. I've shared this many times. We're in church 50 Sundays a year. And we're in this church 48 Sundays a year. That's our commitment. And that's not because I'm a pastor. That's because I'm a Christian. And that's what I believe the best gift I can give my kids is a love for God and a love for their local church. And, you know, honestly, it's my favorite day of the week. It's the best part of our lives. Here's what I'll tell you. And you talk to anyone. The Bible says gray hair is a, is a crown of splendor. You talk to anyone with gray hair, and they'll, they'll acknowledge this. Houses. You know, we put so much money into our houses and so much effort and whatever. Houses come and go. There's going to be a day where you sign on the dotted line, and that house isn't yours anymore. And you move out, and you are now a trespasser. And it's like your home and whatever, and, you know, pole barn and heated floors, drain, everything. And it's gone. It's not yours. Lies come and go careers oh man you put everything into the career someday it's gone someday I will leave this church and they'll put up a new pastor on in my career I don't put my life because careers come and go children this is crazy you might not know this but children leave well I mean hopefully usually this is crazy you know I did a couple weddings last weekend and I told the families I said as of this moment These kids are no longer your immediate family. They are now extended family. They leave you. And those of you raising kids, I mean, you put your life into it and they're my everything and whatever. Listen, children come and go, but a church is for a lifetime. A church is for the generations. And I'm so glad to be doing this with you today. I want to challenge you to build a faith that lasts by committing to raise a family and do life at your local church. You know, and listen... Everybody loves it when I say no one's perfect and everyone's welcome. What that means is there's lots of imperfect people who are probably at some point going to step on your toes at church. It doesn't matter. We're building this together. God's perfect. We're not. We're building a church together and God will fix a broken world. I want you on your way home to talk with your family about what you want your faith to look like a generation from now. And I want you to plan on being at God's church to get there. Fathers and mothers, Sons and daughters, I want you to talk with your families and say, hey, look, this is the story I want to tell with my life. At my 80th birthday party, this is what I want our life to look like. And if you guys need to make some changes, I want you to make some changes. Going back to our key passage, Matthew. Remember chapter 16, 13 through 18. I feel like Jesus was looking at Simon Peter, but he was looking at all of us. We are the rock upon which he'll build a church. And all of us, you know, with Peter, we're looking at this broken city, these broken cities, you know, Caesarea, Philippi, America, Chicago, L.A., Hebron, Damat, Wheatfield, wherever. And it's like, God, what are you going to do? God, it's so messed up. Have you seen the things and the reasons and the problems? Have you turned on the news? I mean, look what's happening. What are we going to do? And he answered with a question. And it's a question I want to pose to all of you today. And I want every person here, doesn't matter what you believe, I want every person here to really answer this question because this is the answer. As soon as you answer this question, you'll have your answer. Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, who do you say that I am? And there was silence as they thought about it. And I want you to really think about this. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Is he a great teacher? Is he a man who is very influential? We're in big trouble, fellas. Ladies, if he's the Messiah, it's gonna be okay. God's got this, he's got this. I mean, if you believe that he's the Messiah, it's gonna be okay, but then there's an onus. He goes, I'm the Messiah, I'm gonna redeem the world. I'm gonna fix it all, but wait, Peter, I'm gonna do it. Wait, church, I'm gonna do it through you and through my church. And we hold the keys through Jesus. He's given them to us to pass to the world for eternal life, for hope, for healing. For salvation, The Holy Spirit works through us. Today, I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. And I want to read the word of the Lord to you. And I'd love for you, if you're willing, just to close your eyes and receive this. I want you to meditate on these words. Jesus said to his disciples, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. That's all of us. And upon this rock, all of us, I will build my church and the gates of hell itself, gates of politics, gates of discrimination, gates of cancel culture, gates of fundamentalism, liberalism, progressivism, will not prevail against it Lord, may it be as you have spoken. Father God, use us to rebuild a broken world. Give us a deep resolve to give the next generation a faith that lasts. Give us a vision for the generations. Give us a determination, a discipline, and a commitment to build your church. God, we are the rock. We are here. We're ready to be used for your glory, for your purposes. God, we thank you for your grace, which is sufficient for everything in life. We cling to your hope, and in ret- or to the hope that you give to us. And in return, we receive faith. God, would you give our churches a faith that lasts as we commit to building your church? It's in your name we pray. All God's people said amen and amen. Let's sing this last song together.